Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU and my co-host, as always, is Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Who have we been reading for the month of January? We've been reading um, Blackwater Falls by Asma Zehanat Khan. This is a great book, like you said. It takes place uh, kind of southeast of Denver, actually southwest of Denver. It's a book about a Muslim girl who's murdered and two detectives from Denver, both Muslim detectives, who are called in to call, help solve the murder. And what they find is just a nest of intrigue and kind of all sorts of things going on in this small town. It's really nice. Well, we are delighted to have Usma join us. Welcome to the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Arson laid it out there that we have these two detectives, and this is a new series. I'm hoping we're going to hear a lot more of Detective Inaya Rachman, who is this Muslim woman who is sent to, as Arson described it, it's like a, a nest of vipers in this town of Blackwater Falls, southwest of Denver, it's in the foothills, and her boss, who's Wakas Safe, and they're part of this special unit. This is a book that touches on so many topics that readers, especially readers in Colorado, will find very familiar. We've got what's happening with police accountability. We've got the over-policing and under-resourcing of communities of colour, particularly immigrant communities. There's a meatpacking factory where the majority of workers are Muslim because of what's happened with immigration raids. All of these are things that have been in the news in Colorado over the years and they're all brought together with many other threads in this book. So take us through, first of all, why you wanted to weave all of these various different themes into this thriller. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, So this book, I consider it my pandemic book because I had taken some time off, completed my first crime series, which was set in Canada. And I'd been living, I've been living here in Colorado now for since 2008. And I'd been absorbing a lot of what's been going on in the news, politically, culturally, and just sort of trying to acclimate as a transplanted Canadian and trying to understand the political currents, the divides in the United States, and and trying to understand what's happening around me. And as all this was happening and the whole country was slowing down, we had this big moment in 2020 with the killing of George Floyd, a black man by a police officer, uh, essentially what I would consider a televised killing where we could see it happen um, and we can understand that there were no mitigating circumstances. And then the nationwide protest, the Black Lives Matter protest that swept the country in the aftermath of the killing. Uh, and it seemed to me that there were several conversations happening politically at the same time. There was a lot of fear and outrage under the Trump presidency about uh, the southern border and an influx of people coming in from Mexico and Central America. There were the Black Lives Matter protests and the question of criminal justice reform and police accountability. And then, of course, there was the Muslim ban that provoked such anxiety for so many communities. And I thought, you know, I'm sitting here and I I think I have a lot to say about these issues through my own unique lens as a Muslim woman of South Asian background. And I'm really interested in Colorado and its politics and its gorgeous, magnificent scenery. So I'm going to bring all of these threads together in a a single book and and try to talk about it through the lens of an, an American woman an American detective investigating this uh, very, this constant tension between immigrant communities and the police. Yeah, so that detective, Anaya, um, she's come from Chicago, where she's had some terrible experiences. 
So tell us about this detective, and and you know you've written a whole other detective series. So what was it like, kind of inventing a new voice here? Um, you know, as you did a different mystery series. I think for me, uh, Inaya was actually this is my tenth novel. So Inaya was my easiest character to write because she's the closest character I've written to my own background and history and heritage and my sense of being transplanted. And she, I have also lived in Chicago. So when I was thinking to myself that I want to write this novel about policing in the United States, I started doing research on where are the big um, hot spots? What are some of the most egregious cases that we've seen? And what police forces have a really bad track record when it comes to zealously over-policing and targeting and harassing minority communities? And one of the big red flag ones, um, apart from the LAPD, and the NYPD was, of course, the Chicago Police Department. And then I saw that Chicago has a civilian office of police accountability where if you have an unjustified police killing, that's where you take your problems. And it's kind of, it operates kind of like internal affairs. Lawyers work there. And I thought, what a great background for my character, that she's part of the police because she wants to be part of this movement for criminal justice reform. But she's doing it through a, the lens of a lawyer who's taking on these cases. So I gave Inaya that background. Uh, I made her South Asian like myself. I gave her the same ethnicity in the sense that she's a Patan or Pashtun woman. And that's an ethnicity that straddles Afghanistan and Pakistan. So she has one parent from each country. Uh, and I had her bring that experience of being in the crucible of Chicago policing, where she experiences a lot of racism, a lot of antagonism, and a lot of difficulty trying to do her job of holding police to account because of the thin blue line. And then she's essentially burned out in that crucible and flees to what she thinks is going to be a much more peaceful existence in this small town in Colorado, only to find the issues that she fled, she's fled, have followed her to her new her new job. I think the tension that Anaya has to navigate every single day, personally and professionally, because she's an outsider almost in every aspect, because the immigrant Muslim community see her as part of the problem because she's with the police. The police themselves see her as an outsider because she's part of this effort to police the police. And so she's navigating this tension of being an outsider in every aspect of her life. She does it remarkably well, but to a huge personal cost. But talk a little bit about what it's like for people who are in those roles from immigrant communities, but are maybe seen as being, I don't want to say we're traitor, but I think that's a, that's an accusation that's levied at her by certain members of the community because she's working from for the police. But she sees that as I'm trying to reform from the inside out. There are many, many people who are trying to navigate that tension in real life as well. Yes, that's very true. And I did a lot of reading about this, about what it's like to be uh, in the police force, say in the FBI or the CIA or any of these uh, law enforcement agencies where you are an outsider and you come with a complicated heritage, not just her, but also Waqas Saif, whose father was Palestinian, whose mother was, was Iranian. And so imagine going into the FBI with that kind of a background and what you face. And I read a, a lot of real life cases about the intense scrutiny and hazing and background checks that take place uh, of officers, law enforcement officers of color. And that was something that I wanted to bring to both of these characters, although they respond to it in different ways. Inaya clings much tighter to her heritage and continues to view her work through the lens of her own values. Whereas Wakas, to blend in, to fit in, to get the work done that he thinks is important, has completely distanced himself from that heritage. And then I was also reading all these, uh, I was following a lot of activists online 
uh, on Twitter across the spectrum and seeing what they had to say about these uh, officers of color. And the viewpoints ranged from, you know, maybe it will work to change the system from within to this person is a complete traitor and it absolutely work, won't work because this is a system that can't be reformed. It has to be deconstructed and reimagined. So I was trying to get some of the complexity of the, those debates into these characters. Well, the other tension that really reminds me of what's happening right now is this idea of what police what police departments do and particularly in communities of of colour because as we are seeing in real life and as we are seeing in this town of Black Waterfalls in your novel, you have an immigrant community that's completely over policed, but they're also completely underserved by law enforcement as well. So they're being let down at every juncture. And that really ties into what we're seeing in real life about the defund the police concept where the folks who are using that as a pejorative term saying, well, that's ridiculous. If we don't have police, we'll have full on anarchy. But then there's all this nuance where we have entire communities who are being over policed, who want to see less policing because when they are victims of crime, they're not getting any kind of resolution or justice from the police departments either. That's right. And uh, we see that particularly with black communities in the United States, where calling the police when you're in trouble can lead to a disastrous outcome for you or your family. And that was in my mind, too, as I was writing the story. So I'm thinking in the story of this community, um, Somali immigrants who work in the local meatpacking plant. And uh, they've had a lot of trouble with the police in terms of being harassed by the local crooked sheriff of Blackwater Falls and his deputies. But they also have an issue when girls go missing with their communities that they're desperate for the police to help them. And the sheriff kind of falls back on these racist tropes of, oh, you know, these Muslim girls are like kept like prisoners in a cage and they've probably run away for free so they can experience something of being free and what it means to be an American and so on. And then the characters take that and dive into it. And one of the lead investigators in the story is a black civil rights attorney by the name of Arisha Adams, who's very much on call for this community uh, and is very aware of the contrast between the kinds of resources allocated to a white victim and a black victim. And she's there to help those black victims raise their voices and to demand accountability from this corrupt sheriff. So she doesn't trust Inaya and Waqas and her Latina partner Catalina when they come to when they first are um, referred to this case and said, you know, you're a minority police department, you're supposed to be sensitive to these communities, so step in and take over. And she's like, just because you have brown skin doesn't mean you're automatically allied with us. You're going to have to prove that through the kind of investigation you do. And I do want to say that I, I interviewed a lot of police officers, and uh, I interviewed people across the spectrum for the book, border patrol officers, police officers, uh, city council women, immigrants, the undocumented, trying to get a full sense, lawyers who work on these types of cases, black activists, Latina activists, uh, Muslim activists, to get a sense of, you know, the, the full range of political viewpoints, but not just political, because we tend to see the political as kind of a rarefied atmosphere, but how these politics deeply and personally impact an individual's life, the kind of route you're going to drive to go to work to escape harassment, where you're going to go to file a complaint and how you're going to get help in those situations. Uh, so it was really informative, helped me color the story in the way that I hope is authentic. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you have the political, the big picture thing, but then you also have these personal struggles these two detectives are going through. And Anaya, you know, when she was in Chicago, she wore a headscarf, you know, and now she's chosen not to. She wears a braid. Uh, Wakas, who's taking care of two younger brothers and but has he, he sometimes, you know, uh, tries to 
you know, almost I don't want to say pass, but he uses the word he used the word caste. He he's he's okay with people if they assume that he's not Muslim. Um, and what I found was really interesting was that, but the two of them together, especially for Wakas, it really she's like the key to opening something up in him. And these, you know, that they're both living such not her so much, but he's living such a conflicted life. And um, I thought that was really interesting to play that out with this backdrop with the violence of the missing girls and the and the corrupt sheriff. But he's his inner conflict is great as well. That, that's a really great insight into him. That's exactly what Inaya is doing. She's opening up this thing that he's locked tight inside himself, his connection to his father, to his mother, to his heritage languages, and his unruly twin brothers who he's been raising since his parents passed away uh, are the opposite of him. They're like young activists who would the FBI would probably put on the list and call radicals and we've got to keep an eye on them for radicalization. But all they're really engaged in is the fight for social justice for the causes that they're passionate about and they're deeply religious. So they actually connect to Inaya really well when they meet her. Um, and that's and so Safe is well class Safe is seeing all of this and he's conflicted, as you said, about whether that heritage actually has meaning and whether he can continue to do his job if he unlocks that part of himself through Inaya and makes a connection with her to his family, to his heritage, and then lets that inform how he does his work. So he's really struggling with that. And that struggle doesn't end in this book. It's actually just beginning. That has to be a struggle that I would think, you know, is very prevalent, as Maeve had talked about with these the police forces, you know, the struggle to to on one side, you you the power structure is is white and male and patriarchal and you want to to get something done you might feel like you have to fit into that but to be true to yourself um that's not the truth and so i think it must cause a lot of conflicts and all different kind of things when you were talking to people the border agents all sorts of different people was this something that came up a decent amount was this something that people talked about uh, you know, the, the police officers and the Border Patrol agents that I spoke to had real faith in their work. They believed that they were out there trying to do right and that they, they weren't discriminating against people and that for a lot of them it was a case of there's just a few bad apples and we have to keep an eye on that and we have to try to get those people out of the police force and then we also have to do some work to reform how we escalate, how we approach policing. And in Colorado, um, there's these new use of force guidelines in effect that I thought were really interesting. But when I talked to police officers about them, what they told me is that, you know, it's just a lot of extra paperwork and it doesn't necessarily change how we do the job on the street. Um, and sometimes we're in situations that pose a real danger to us. And at the end of the day, we want to go home to our families just as much. So in the story, you can't really paint any any viewpoint purely in terms of black and white you have to dig into those nuances and that's why i have a character like jamie webb who comes from a dysfunctional home with an abusive father he's a young police officer and he's one of these guys who believes he's a good guy and he wants to do good things for people because his family needed the police to prevent his father from abusing them um so I try not to take a firm viewpoint as the author. I don't want the authorial voice to intrude. I want the characters to have these experiences and for them to take viewpoints. And then it's up to the reader to decide what they think at the end of all this. Have uh, Where should these debates eventually um, end up? What should we actually do about policing in the United States? 
We're speaking today with author Usma Zahanat Khan, whose latest book, Blackwater Falls, introduces us to Detective Anaya Rahman. And Blackwater Falls has been the book we have been reading on the Radio Book Club for the month of January. The book club is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran of KGNU. My co-host, as always, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Well, there are loads of different scenes in this. I mean, when I mean scenes like physical location scenes, there is a cafe that's a gathering point for so many run by a Lebanese woman um, in the community. There is the meatpacking plant. There's an evangelical church. And then there's this big tech company. And we'll talk about the tech company in just a moment. But I want to talk about the meatpacking plant because this really is something that was all over the news in Colorado in recent years is a big meat packing plant in Greeley that many, many uh, of the workers there are Muslim immigrant workers. And they had replaced Latino workers who had been deported after a major immigration raid. And there was a lot of conflict that has happened over the years about being allowed to have space and time and, and a room to pray. And there's so many various different tensions in that real life story, was that a direct inspiration? Is that happening in other communities or was that something that you were made aware of that had been a huge, big story here in Colorado? Why was that location of a meatpacking plant such an integral part of, of your novel, Blackwater Falls? Well, well, you're absolutely right. It was a direct inspiration for what happens with the Somali community who work at the natural food plants in, in Blackwater Falls. I had done a lot of research reading about what had happened at the plant when the Muslim workers there wanted to observe the holy month of Ramadan fast during the day, take their prayer breaks and how that stirred up all kinds of antagonism and hostility. And um, when there was a movement to accommodate them, there was pushback and all of that. So I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. And there was also something else that had happened when I had first moved to Colorado. And um, I think Ramadan was coming up and then there was this, I can't remember the exact name of the, the bike, the biker club or gang, whatever they call it. But there was this gang out in Colorado Springs that um, had advertised heavily this Ramadan pork barbecue. And it was kind of meant as a, you're not welcome here and we're insulting your religious traditions, blah, blah, blah. But to me, I just found it really funny because I think they they assigned much more weight to this question of pork than we do, which is mainly a dietary restriction. And they thought, oh, like, you know, we're striking a blow for whatever our particular form of Christianity may be by, by insulting this community. And it's like those little nuances in Colorado culture from these different outliers that I wanted to capture. And, and I think I even have a reference to it in the book. And, and similarly, like me, Inaya finds it, instead of insulting, she just finds it really funny and pathetic. Um, so I wanted to capture that. I wanted to reflect what Colorado is really like. I was very fascinated by the fact that in the nation, uh, it ranks number five in terms of officer-involved shootings because on this, what I really love about Colorado is on the surface, it's like so picturesque and so clean and the community that I live in is so safe. But underneath the surface, all these things are happening that we're not necessarily aware of. Uh, so I, I tried to capture some of those tensions and, and I even referred to the fact that these Somali workers have replaced um, Latinx workers because of the ice raids on those plants and that that posed a problem for the employers who want to keep the workers happy, but then are also experiencing this pushback from 
different communities such as evangelical churches because they don't want, you know, the Islamization of America, a term that I often hear. And I, I, where I live in Colorado is surrounded by mega churches, which again is, was really fascinating to me because Canada doesn't have a strong religious identity. It's a very secular country. And, you know, if you were religious, you don't make a big deal about it. You just quietly go to your church and come home. Uh, so that to me was like such an interesting window to explore in this book is how people attach themselves to specific churches and the values of those churches. And, um, for a long time, I'd been following this Islamophobia report and what they were reporting on happening um, in terms of anti-Muslim racism in this country. And they were referring to the sermons of a particular pastor, which I thought, you know, no one could say these kinds of things. I mean, this is an exaggeration beyond belief. But then I went online and listened to the sermons myself, and they were much worse than anything any writer could invent for fiction. So every time I put something in one of my novels, I say, mm, I might have gone too far here. But then truth is always much more exaggerated and bizarre and ridiculous than fiction. So I always come back to that place of comfort, knowing that these things are actually happening out in the world. And, you know, decent minded folk might find it hard to believe. But when you dig, it's there. Can you tell us about the opening scene? So uh, the, the uh, Muslim teenager is found murdered right outside of the mosque but she's not murdered, like lying there. Can you describe that scene and how you set upon that as, as kind of the image of the book in a way and, and how strong that is and how it ties into these, some of these different religious um, things you've been talking about, both Islam and Christianity. So the opening scene in Black Waterfalls is the only chapter in the book that is written from the killer's point of view. And the killer is describing his arrangement of the murder victim's body. And she's a teenage refugee from Syria by the name of Razan al-Khadr, who loves the United States, who's made a great new life for herself and is full of promise for the future and things that she can do despite the backstory and tragedy that her family experienced escaping Syria. So he's killed this uh, young girl, and now he's nailed her body to the door of the local mosque in Blackwater Falls, which is a symbolic act in itself, which almost immediately reads as a hate crime when you do something like that. So that's the first impression that I wanted to strike is to reflect those tensions in the community and this anti-Muslim sentiment that runs under the surface, but came out during the years of the Trump presidency. It was very much part of the mainstream political discourse. Um, and he's arranging her in a way that's almost artistic and it's kind of like he's paying homage to her. And if you if you read, it's not a spoiler because you'll see it on the first page of the book, but it's almost as if he regrets what he's having to do, which then gives you a second layer where you think maybe this isn't a hate crime. If somebody regrets it, uh, people who think in these black and white terms of others don't belong, don't usually spend time with their inner reflections, feeling remorse or, or you know, maybe it's a serial killer. We don't know. Um, but then when the detectives come to the scene, we realize that she's posed in a particular way with all these details because it's an emulation of the crucifixion. And so it's not just a hate crime, but it's very specifically a Christian posing of a Muslim girl. And that theme is replicated, or that motif is replicated throughout the story as we see tensions between members of the evangelical church right down into their youth groups, as exemplified by the um, attack on Razan before she died, where a group of young football players ripped her headscarf from her hair. Uh, and, and then the pastor constantly, the local pastor of the church, Pastor Wayne, always preaching against the local immigrant community, the Muslim community, the mosque, and the mosque having trouble getting a permit to build, or a Muslim cemetery. These are all little threads in the story. 
And, um, and so we're being directed to look at the tensions between these two communities and see if this imposition of Christianity on top of Islam is a key to the motive for the murder or not. Now, in addition to being a prolific author, you are also an international human rights attorney. And well, first of all, where do you get the time to do all of that? <laughs> but but I'd love your perspective on this because you absolutely touch on this in Black Waterfalls. We have the Syrian refugee family and refugees from other countries as well. But we we hear about the experience of this family, how they lost a child who drowned coming over. We're hearing this all the time about what's happening in the Mediterranean, lost another child back in Syria, their battle to to just try to, to exist. You know, talk a little bit about what we're seeing globally when it comes to refugees and how we're seeing more and more restrictive policies being engaged. Like right now in Greece, there is a trial of a couple of humanitarians. They're being tried for human trafficking and espionage because they're part of this nonprofit that goes out and rescues people who are drowning because of these very precarious sea crossings that refugees are being forced into because of these restrictive policies. There is no way to apply for asylum in so many countries. And and we're seeing this in Britain, people being exported, for want of a better word, to Rwanda to file asylum. What What is happening globally when it comes to refugees? And then maybe, you know, how is that playing out in communities, maybe even here in Colorado? Oh, that's a, that's a big question to answer, but a good one. Um, so I became uh, interested, I've always been interested in the question of refugees from the time I did my graduate work on the Bosnian genocide. And we were looking at Bosnian refugee communities, which was actually the subject uh, of my first novel, The Unquiet Dead. So part of my career, I've spent a great deal of time interviewing refugees, hearing the stories of their different journeys, uh, including the Syrian refugee community for another book that I wrote in my first crime series, which was called A Dangerous Crossing. And the Muslim detective in that book, Isa Khatak, gets intensely involved in the Syrian refugee crisis, particularly on an island in Greece, where which is kind of one of the front lines. So the Syrian refugee crisis today is the greatest refugee crisis of the last 30 years, actually, around the globe. Um, it's one of the most significant, where more than half the population is internally displaced and more than 6 million have actually fled. And I think one of the great... Um, one of the great uh, shortcomings of the reporting is I think a lot of people in the West, in Europe and America, don't understand precisely what it is that Syrians are fleeing. So my earlier book, A Dangerous Crossing, focused a lot on the depravities of the Assad regime, the fact that it's in fact a torture state, um, and that in human rights reporting, it's been reported that they carry out torture on an industrial scale. So the journey of the Al-Qadr family in Blackwater Falls kind of encapsulates what so many Syrians have experienced. A child who's detained and tortured by the regime, a child who drowns in seas, and we don't know how many thousands of people have drowned in these crossings. Um, and then a child that's stuck in another country without papers. So a family that's completely torn apart, they're only able to bring their one daughter here. And one of the one of the most disturbing responses, I think, because of this lack of information of what was happening inside Syria and this kind of characterization of the civil war is, well, we don't want jihadists coming to Europe. So you see this slamming of doors, what we call Fortress Europe, with these extremely, um, what's the right word? I don't want to say criminal, but 
it feels like almost quasi-criminal policies that make legal uh, asylum, despite so many countries being signatories to the Refugee Convention, make legal asylum almost impossible to seek or to achieve. And that is only possible through two prongs. One is a lack of information about what a refugee, act who a refugee actually is. And the second is um, a, a lack of understanding about what our obligations are under that convention, coupled with the entire a major media movement to dehumanize refugees, which we saw if you look at the tabloids in, in Britain, for example, I can show you a spreadsheet of their covers where instead of ever using the word refugees, they would use language like migrants or swarms or attack on uh, attack on Britain, inv Islamic invasion, things like that, which in every possible way uh, undercut the suffering of these refugees. And then that, of course, came over to the United States as well. It was um, solidified by the years of the Trump presidency with its anti-refugee uh, rhetoric. Uh, and, and I've been shocked, actually, by how few people actually use the word refugee now, because a refugee implies legal obligations of other countries to these people. It implies some understanding of their suffering. Uh, and so there was a period where, in a year, America had only admitted 11 refugees from Syria, despite the extent of and the gravity of this crisis. Um, so that process of dehumanization, I think, has played a role uh, in the slamming of so many doors around the globe, particularly in the West, which is obviously a desirable destination for refugees to come. It has also played a role in misunderstanding what underlies the crisis and whether we might mount a better response to it without getting mired in you know, these debates about imperial intervention in other countries and so on. Um, and it, it relieves us of any responsibility towards our fellow human beings. And that's one of the main themes that I've been trying to bring out in both of my books about Syria, A Dangerous Crossing and Blackwater Falls. A, Black, a Dangerous Crossing, it was much more in your face and blatant because the whole story was about the crisis. But in Blackwater Falls, it's a subtle thread running throughout that ultimately is given its most painful expression in the final words of the last chapter. I'd like to thank our guest, Usma Zahanat Khan, who has been our guest today on the Radio Book Club. Her latest book is Blackwater Falls. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the programme. I really appreciate it. Well, as we always do at the end of each Book Club episode, we announce what we are reading for the following month. So, Arson, who and what are we reading for the month of February? Well, we're staying in Colorado with a book called Bratwurst Haven by Rachel King. And it's a series of short stories and as the term bratwurst says, we might be back in the world of meat in Colorado. Well, folks can catch that on KGNU on the fourth Thursday of February at 9 a.m. But subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. For KGNU and the Radio Book Club, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.